0: I'd like to introduce Naomi Tepper, if I may, our mission director, as she introduces someone else, McKinley Bradshaw.
1: Good morning, everybody. Um, it truly is a privilege and, and an honor to serve as missions director here in this house. I would say that one of the greatest joys of being mission director is that I get to build relationship with and have contact with missionaries around the world who are doing incredible things, church planting, teaching um, and it is just such a joy to have contact with them, it's been a real joy and an honour to get to know McKinley, like to invite McKinley Bradshaw to come up and to share with us (laughs) Now I remember probably about I may have my dates wrong, about 18 months ago that McKinley and I Met for our first coffee in Panara Bread down um, by the mall, was that? And um, at that point, McKinley was just sharing her heart for for the lost. It came over so clearly, her heart for the Lord, her heart for the lost, her heart for missions. And um, I was just captivated by her. She's um, incredible, has such a beautiful heart. And since then, we've probably met a whole bunch more times as we've just seen God's plan unfold for McKinley and his call upon her life. So I think it was in May that McKinley, was it May that you finished nursing studies? So McKinley finished nursing studies in May and then a few weeks later was on a plane to Africa, so to South Africa, to be more specific. So McKinley, can you tell us a little bit about your missions experience in South Africa?
2: You'll have to forgive me this morning, I'm rather under the weather, so... um, Like Naomi said, I am uh, doing mission work in South Africa, and I'm working um, as a nurse jointly with uh, this team called Yeni, and uh, I'm interning with them. Do I, this way, this way, sorry. Um, And so I intern with them, and uh, I work with a team of... Uh, There's four interns, and then there's a couple who lead us, and uh, there's a couple who runs Emoyeni on the ground in South Africa. And so we live in very close community, and uh, the main work that we do is ministry with the children of South Africa. Uh, It's a very—South Africa is kind of— it's very unique in that there's, there's influences from many different cultures. And uh, so there's the white South African culture, and then there's the black South African culture. And so they're very different from each other, and, but they kind of take from each other. And so there's a bit of a mix between all of it. And uh, we do most of our work with the black South Africans uh, and the kids in the township. And they are so sweet, and I love them to death. Um, and we do this thing called Kids Club. It's one of my favorite things that we do. Uh, we go into the community once a week and do a big Kids Club, and then we go in a couple other times during the week and just pray for the kids because we found that that's the biggest way that we can uh, empower that community and to change that community because there's just such a darkness uh, that's present there. Um, witchcraft is still very much part of the culture uh, in that tribal culture. Uh, Ancestralism is really big and so we go in and we pray for the kids and we just pray for spiritual bondages to be broken Um, But then we also have a lot of face time with the kids and we just get to build relationships with them And as a nurse I go in every day to kids club and when I go in I'm always doing running assessments and uh, because the kids They're not, I got a little overwhelmed the other day because I went with my mom to a Bible Buddies thing that she does. And it's this daycare and there's all these kids. And all of a sudden I felt myself getting really overwhelmed because it was like for the first time in, I've been over there for about four months. So for the first time in about four months, I saw a group of kids and they were all healthy young kids. And I didn't realize that that was something that's so different because over there, when we have kids club, When we have Kids Club, there's always at least a few kids who are like just snotty noses and they're running around without shoes on and, and they're just they're just not healthy like the kids we have here. And it's something that I didn't realize that I took for granted when I was here. Um, So we do Kids Club, and then we'll go into the community, and we'll do home visits at the Kids Club uh, houses. So the kids who come to Kids Club will go to their homes, and we'll just build relationship with their family. And that's a special time because we get invited in, and we get to sit with the families and the moms and the the grandmas. They're called Go-Go's. And so we sit with the Go-Go's, and we just get to minister with them and pray with them and love on them. Um, and another thing that we do is we have feeding sites for the kids Uh, we feed over a thousand kids uh, and it's three times a week now uh, that we feed them at six different feeding sites so it's a pretty huge undertaking and we get to um, actually go to one of the feeding sites once a week and build relationships with them and because we started doing that uh, the door to the schools has been open to us and I'm really excited about that as a nurse because I get to go in And uh, because we've built this relationship with them, I now have the opportunity to go in and um, do these health education sessions. And so that's exciting for me because uh, I am a huge... um, Uh, I just believe education is so powerful, it empowers people, and it's something that you can give to people that stays with them long after you're gone. And so um, I get to go in and we're going to do a lot of different sessions, we're going to do a dental hygiene session, Um, people have donated toothbrushes and toothpaste, and so I get to, at the end of the dental hygiene session, I get to say, all right, now you get to take home a tube of toothpaste and a toothbrush, and you get to uh, do the things that we're learning now. And then uh, we did a uh, thing with hand soap. And so I get to do a hand hygiene session and we uh, go in and then every child gets a bar of soap or a a bottle of soap. And so it's just great to be able to give to the kids um, something that they're learning and then they can take it back home with them. Uh, But another really big ministry that we do, uh, let me see, we did home visits, sorry. This is one of my favorite little girls. Her name's Liefle, and um, she's just so precious. And she is actually, uh, she was one of the reasons that we were able to get into the schools, uh, which is just a cool story. I don't really have time for it, but she was a, she was a reason that we were able to get into the schools. Um, and we did the feeding sites, and Moy Plas is one of the um, feeding site ministries that we do. We also have pre-K schools, and we go in and they have pre-K teachers, and so all the kids get uh, food and then they get an education, and it's a safe place for them to be during the day before they can start school uh, because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of exploitation of children over there. And so it's a safe place for those kids to be uh, before they are able to go off to school. Um, And this is Ben, he's my leader, Uh, he's directly above me. He and his wife, Dee, they're awesome people and I love it. It's such an honor to be able to walk with them and uh, grow with them in this time. Girls with Vision. This is one of my favorite things that we do and I have some things to pass around. Girls with Vision is um, a group that encourages and walks with young girls. This culture is a very highly promiscuous culture. I'm going to pass these around. If you guys could just, uh, at the end of this, leave the cards up here so that I can take them back with me. Uh, But I'll pass them around so you guys can kind of see a little bit. Um, And so girls with vision is a really cool thing that thank you, that one of uh, our main translators does. And she just walks with these young girls, and she teaches them about their identity and their value. And um, she and I have been working closely together, and she's starting a pregnancy crisis center. um, And she and I are kind of working together on this. Um, I'm going to help her as an educator and just teaching the girls what to expect when they're pregnant or how to just take care of their bodies, feminine hygiene, things like that. There's a lot of negative cultural um, expectations and um, just teachings about a woman's body, and uh, they are not valued um, as human beings or as women, and they're just taught all these negative things about themselves, and so. Vimbai is this woman's name. She's an incredible woman. And what she's doing is she's walking with these girls, and she's teaching them about purity and abstinence. And that is an unheard-of concept in this culture. Uh, the young girls, they, they start kind of becoming sexually active when they are between 10 and 12 years old a lot of times, which is insane. And uh, it's heartbreaking because they're just children. And uh, so what Vimbai does... And she goes in and she teaches them about purity and about abstinence and how to have a healthy family and just how to value themselves. And so what she's doing is, what's incredible is she she teaches them these things and then she has a girl that gets pregnant and it happens over and over again. And it's kind of like all these things that she teaches them, it's just thrown back in her face. But then she just gives it back and she says, I'm going to love you through this. I'm going to walk with you through your pregnancy and I'm going to help you as you raise your child. And so she's just an incredible woman and she's so full of love. Um, But she and I have been working together And uh, I'm going to work as an educator with her. And these cards that you're seeing passed around are handmade cards by teen moms. And so it empowers them because if you just give someone something, that doesn't help anything because it's just stimulating the poverty mentality. And it's hard because it's like, oh, I have the means to give. But then... You're not teaching them anything. And so this is helping the girls to have something to do with their time so that they feel empowered to be able to make money for themselves and raise their children, and as well as giving them a safe place to be after school or something like that.
1: Can you tell us just briefly, I know you spoke to me about the AIDS epidemic and some of the diseases that were in the community that you were having to help with. Can you tell us briefly about that?
2: So like I said, it's a highly promiscuous society and culture, and uh, the HIV and AIDS epidemic is um, just out of control in South Africa, and the infection rate in the area that I'm in is upwards of 30%, and um, it's culturally taboo to talk about it. If you have HIV then you are a social outcast and so people have it, but they won't go in and they won't get their treatment for it and so, uh, and they won't get their kids treatment for it who got it from them during birth or during, you know, just raising the children. And so there's these young kids and it's just heartbreaking because I've tested kids positive for HIV and, and their moms are not taking them to the clinic to get their medication even though it's free because of the social stigma against HIV. And so um, this group, is the Girls with Vision group, is another thing where it's trying to bring to light that this is not a death sentence and you are not a social outcast because you have this. And teaching girls how to take care of themselves and moms and just the community how to take care of themselves with this disease. And uh, it's really sad because it's so easily preventable, but there's just a lot of miseducation about it. they're, they have this belief with the, the sangomas, the witch doctors, that uh, they'll tell the men, oh, well, if you have HIV and you go find seven virgins and you sleep with those seven virgins, you'll be cured. So <laughs> that's terrible. And, um, and the girls, the virgins, you know, they're very young because they start young. And so these girls, they're out finding young girls and taking advantage of them. And so rape is a really big issue over there. And it's kind of like a cultural expectation, sort of. It's not when, when a girl gets raped, it's not like, oh, let, let's help you heal. Let's help you get through this and walk through this with you. It's get over it, you know? Like, this happens. Get over it. It's part of life. And that shouldn't be how it is. And so um, it's heartbreaking, but that's part of, um, it's part of their culture. And so we go in and we just try to love the girls through that and tell them that that's not okay and that their identity is... Um, is not how the culture sees them it's how the Lord sees them and just uh, walking with them and showing them the love of the Father day in and day out
1: Um, Thanks McKinley and just one more question past few weeks we've been partnering with you and collecting vitamins I don't know if you've seen the baskets of vitamins in different corners of the church we've got vitamins, sorry (laughs) I did the same things last week but anyway, vitamins, vitamins Um, come on um vitamins see I can say vitamins with a British accent too um we've been collecting vitamins uh, can you tell us what they're for how you're going to use them
2: yes um so the vitamins are uh, part of the health sessions that I'm going to go into the schools and into kids club and in the community and teach the kids about And the vitamins are part of those. Uh, We're going to talk about nutrition and how important it is for the health of their bodies. And so at the end of the session, uh, I'm going to be able to go to the kids and give them a bottle of vitamins. And um, what I want to do is to be able to give the kids a three-month supply, because that's um, when it becomes really effective. The vitamins become really effective in in changing their health, uh, the health of their bodies. But they say vitamins in South Africa as well, and I took a child to the doctor. And uh, at the end of it, they write, wrote them all these prescriptions and they just handed them to us. And I was like, whoa, 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 we need to talk about these. Like, what, what are you handing us? And she, said, she told him, and I said, okay, so these are the vitamins. She's like, no, vitamins. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> so same reaction both sides of the pond. <laughs> but yeah, that's what that'll be for. So you guys are um, helping me to be able to bring education and... Um, and just general well-being and health to the kids over there that I work with. Thank you so much for uh, going out and doing that. I know uh, sometimes it can be a pain or, you know, it's just inconvenient, but it really is. It's changing futures, and um, it's helping kids to become healthier and live better and healthier lives. So thank you so much for your generosity in that regard.
1: If anyone would like to um, come up and we're gonna just pray, pray for McKinley.
0: Okay, I'll pray.
1: (laughs) Father God, I just thank you so much for McKinley's life. I just thank you for um, what you've put inside her, God, for her passion for you and her passion for others, God. Thank you that you've called her for this time to be in South Africa. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way that you are using her. God, we just pray you hedge your protection around her. Just pray that you provide for her every need. We pray for her health. You keep her strong, God. And we just pray that you would continue to work in and through her in mighty and wonderful, incredible ways, Lord. We thank you and praise you. We pray your blessings upon her today, God. And as you'll just um, go before her as she heads back to South Africa, Go before her. We pray these vitamins would just um, bless these kids, God, would be used for your glory. Ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.
0: Good morning. McKinley, we are certainly proud of you and are uh, proud to have you as one of our own. And I know you're heading back shortly, so our prayers will be with you. Take your Bible and turn to John 1. We're going to be taking a look at John 1. Pastor Steve introduced this series last week, and then we're going to be cross referencing it with a little passage out of John 17. But before I jump into those things, I wanted to make just a few comments this morning. Our own Sarah Phillips is back with us for the first time in two years. Sarah's husband, uh, Don, just passed away. She was married to him for 56 years, and I'm told, she told me they dated for almost five. So, uh known him a long time, and we know that he is now on the other side in eternity, most likely playing a round of golf with Jesus. (laughs) Sarah said that uh, she and Don used to joke she wanted a library in heaven and he wanted a golf course. (laughs) The other thing that I wanted to make mention of this morning is, uh, and Pastor Steve already did, but um, Robert Bender passed away this past week, and you know what I found interesting about that is he was the last charter member of Myrtle Grove and in the last couple weeks we've lost our last two charter members of Myrtle Grove Alma Benson and then Robert Bender and you know I did not know Robert well but one of the things that stood out to me was a story someone else told me but there was a time when Myrtle Grove needed to be painted and it might have actually been at this church down the way and not not here but the money wasn't around to paint the church and so Robert took it on himself to hire a contractor, meet with him after hours, and the contractor came and painted the entire church. He paid for it out of his pocket and never said a word to anybody. not that neat? Robert was a great man, and, you know, we have this rich legacy here at Myrtle Grove. He was a member of Myrtle Grove for seven decades And the reason Abby and I are here at Myrtle Grove is because we value the legacy, we value the history, we value the lineage. I meet with a group of six young uh, pastors here in town. We meet once a month. And most of them are, um, two of them are Presbyterian pastors, a couple of them are non-denominational pastors. They're all great guys, but they all lead church plants. So I'm the oddball. And they're always asking me questions about Myrtle Grove. And one of the things I've articulated to them is the history of Myrtle Grove just finishing two 30 year, 25, 30 year Bible translations. The history of some 18 full time missionaries that are on the field that we've been supporting. The history of church plants that have gone out of this house over the decades. It is an incredible history. I was with uh, one of those guys, one of those pastors the other day. We were carrying our surfboards on the way to catch a wave over at Masonboro. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Michael, I was thinking about what you said. And I think that us young guys, he's about my age, about 35. He said, I think us young guys have no idea of the true value of history and legacy and lineage. So can, can we give God a hand for what he's done through this house? It's a good thing. Amen. Amen. Secondly, Pastor Steve already mentioned it, but just here in my opening comments, we have a massive election coming up, and I want to take a moment and speak to our younger group, maybe 50 and down in the house. (laughs) Can I say that? Maybe 40 and down. I got some 20 and down over here. If you're like me, it's really easy to just cast this whole thing aside and go, I can't stand anyone, and therefore I'm not going to vote. It's really easy to do that, right off the whole mess, because you can't stand any of them. The HB2 debacle that happened in Charlotte, I'm not going to dig into that, I'm not going to open it up, if you want to research it on your own time, do it, but I want to tell you how we got there. 4% of the people showed up to vote in Charlotte for multiple consecutive years for the mayor and the city council. That means 96% of the people in Charlotte, North Carolina, did not even turn up to cast a vote. And that's how that situation happened. Now, I will welcome, Abby and I welcome every human at our table. I've got a history, I've got a past, I've got a testimony. We welcome anybody, no matter of sexual preference, orientation, no matter where they are, no matter where they're walking, no matter what is going on in their lives, but we cannot shift the truth of the gospel. We must maintain the authority of Scripture. And younger people, I think our older folks in the crowd probably have this, but younger people, you have, we have a God-given responsibility to take a look at the issues. I don't care about the personalities. I don't care who we like and who we don't like. It's who is the one who is going to advocate most closely to biblical morals and values. That's who we've got to go with. You have a responsibility. We have a serious responsibility to vote. Let's take that seriously. Amen? Okay, before we jump in, I had to lighten things up because I know all that was kind of heavy, so I got a, a quick little story to tell you. Abby and I are in the middle of taking a class, and as part of that class, I had to go down and get fingerprinted. So I went down to the courthouse, and I, I had to, pulled out my driver's license, and I was, I was getting fingerprinted, and this, this girl was there, and so there's this big fingerprint machine, and she's, you know, taking my thumb and rolling it, and we're doing all my, all my whatever fingers. And she has a computer there, and she's filling out all this information. And so she, as she asks me questions, she's looking at my driver's license. And so she, um, she said, where do you live? And I said, well, 3447, Masonboro Loop Road. Typing that in, looks at my driver's license. Okay. How tall are you? 6'2". Okay. Types that in. Uh, what, what color eyes do you have? Green, okay, type that in. What color is your hair? <laughs> I very confidently said blonde. She picked up my driver's license and looked at it. And looked back at the computer. Three times she looks at me and says, sir, I am so sorry, but I'm going to have to put you down as bald. (laughs) The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, huh? (laughs) Oh, bless Jesus. Okay, turn, let's, thank you, you, Pastor Jim. (laughs) Okay, you guys turn with me to John chapter one, Uh, Pastor Steve launched this uh, series last week. Um, and I do want to put a little plug in for him. Um, last week, he preached one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard him preach. It was a powerful, powerful sermon on life in Christ and how we are truly crucified with Christ and allow Christ to live his life through us. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to pick up a CD out here, go online and listen to it. It was, a, for me, a hallmark uh, sermon. So we're going to jump into John chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses. We're going to look at sort of the the massive view of God, in the beginning, God. And then we're going to take a quick look at the very last prayer that Christ Jesus prayed with his disciples before he went to the cross. Which I think betrays, or reveals is probably a better word, Christ's real heart. The, The number one thing that was on his heart and mind as he went to that cross. And I think it's essential for us here at Myrtle Grove as we move forward. Sound good? All right, let's look at uh, John 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I want you to be mindful of something here. That capital W, W-R-D word, can be translated Jesus. It's logos. It can be translated Christ Jesus. And the Gospel of John was written to sort of establish the deity of Christ. It was the last of the four Gospels written. And if you looked at the Gospel of Luke, it was written to kind of establish the humanness of Christ. But the Gospel of John was written to establish the Godhead of Christ Jesus. So that's why John starts this way. So I want to I reread this, and I want to put in the word Jesus in place of word. Can we do it? All right, let's go. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. You know, it's fascinating to me. There exists sometimes in our culture this little Um, thing that sort of happens where we somehow think there's a hierarchy in heaven God and then there's Jesus and there's the Holy Spirit and John is sort of attacking the fabric of that straight away in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God he was with God in the beginning and through Jesus all things were made Without Jesus, nothing was made that had been made, and in him Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we unpack these five verses, as we even look at the last words that you prayed in John 17 today. Would you enliven us with the very core value of who you are, Jesus? I think we sometimes see you as a distant deity rather than an intimate deity who is concerned with our lives and our oneness. And what we begin to see here in these first five verses is your relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you let us see you as a fiercely relational God today? And would you enliven our hearts? Would you mold us? Would you make us? Amen. Our son Stephen is 10, and he's in a Cub Scout uh, group. He's in PAC 212 down at First Presbyterian. And a couple years ago, they asked for a volunteer. And, you know, I was, oh, sure, I'll, I'd love to volunteer. So I got signed up as the assistant pack master. I know that sounds quite glorious, and uh, I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to be taking kids camping, or maybe I'd get to teach them to rock climb or canoe or something cool. But as we've gotten into it, I'm a glorified um, record keeper. I take dues, and I take roll, and I keep all the paperwork straight, and I'm not very good at administrative tasks, but I am in there. Uh, I love the Boy Scout program. I believe in it, and I believe in teaching this next generation things like character and integrity, and that's what we're doing. I'm an Eagle Scout, so I just love that, love the whole group. But as one of the things we're doing with Stephen's uh, pack, and I don't lead his little pack, there's another leader, but one of the things we're doing is an adventure um, about the solar system. And remember, we're talking about in the beginning, God. Remember? In the beginning, God created. So we go out to the uh, beach, and we had each kid in Stephen's little group draw a planet. You know, there's like eight planets plus the dwarf planet Pluto or whatever. I think that's beyond me, but we're just going to say nine for today. So, Stephen drew the sun, and each of these kids had a planet, and we went out to the beach, and we were going to make a two scale model of the solar system. You follow me? So, what we did is each foot represented a million miles. I want you to get a sense of the grandiosity of Christ Jesus today. How big! Our God is and then we're going to flip it and we're going to look at how intimate our God is so we go out to the beach and we this is Stephen's uh, son he drew this one I didn't bring the other ones that the boys made but we stick the sun in the ground at Johnny Mercer's pier okay and then we take a wheel that measures feet and for each million miles we uh it was a foot and so we we would wheel this little thing and then we put the next planet in the sand you following me Everybody understands? We're making a two scale model. Okay, so uh, after the Sun, there's Mercury, which was 36 feet away. So 36 million miles. That's right, okay, you got it. All right, so after uh, Mercury, we had Venus, which was 67 feet, so 67 million miles. And after Venus, we have Earth, and we kept going and going and going. Now, Pluto, we get to Pluto. Do you know how far we had to walk on our two scale model? Three quarters of a mile. Three quarters of the mile, we hiked down the beach with this little crew of boys, and then we stuck Pluto in the sand. Is that not insane, the grandiosity of our God? Then, get this, the nearest star. I'm standing there on the beach, and I, I had never quite gotten this fully in my head. I don't know why. You see these little pictures of the, the solar system, That's it's like these little dots on a page, and you just have no idea the grandiosity of what God's created and what we live in. But so we're standing there, and the nearest star, if we kept going with our little measuring clicker, we would have to cross the Atlantic Ocean, cross Portugal, cross Spain, cross France, and land in Switzerland on our, on our two scale, you know, one, one foot equals a million miles. That's how close the nearest star is in our little galaxy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I stood there on the beach. The boys didn't even know this. I was working on this sermon. I was, had been already thinking about it, and I hadn't even connected the two, but I was so humbled by the grandness of our God. He is so big. And how many galaxies span what he's created? He is so so big so i want to go back and i want to reread this one more time from the perspective of the grandness of our jesus and then we're going to look at the intimate unity between god the father god the son and god the holy spirit okay in the beginning was the word and the word was with god this is the niv and the word was god He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's why McKinley's over in South Africa advancing the gospel of Christ Jesus, being the hands and feet, letting Christ live his life through her, She could be out doing something else, and she's out serving Jesus. Go, girl. You might feel like God is a distant cosmic force. You might feel like that he's out of touch with us. You might feel like that he's the creator of heaven and earth, but he's certainly not in touch with me as an individual. But what I want to propose to you today is that we have a fiercely relational God. In the beginning, you have God, you have Jesus, you have Holy Spirit together, communing as one, doing life together, as the millennial crew likes to say, creating together. They're hanging out, and in the beginning, they are doing this together. See, God is acquainted with the details of our personal lives And I want to contrast the greatness of God's deity in Christ in John 1 with the fiercely relational God that John 1 also depicts. In the beginning, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are together in fierce relationship, creating, working with one another. I want to flip it, and I want to look at Jesus' last prayer with his disciples. It's a special focus on that intimate connection between God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in John 17. So let's dig into John 17, flip your, flip your pages just a few over. What we see in John 17 is this last prayer that Jesus prays. And I want to kind of paint a picture of this. So Jesus has just come in to the city of Jerusalem. There's a triumphal entry. You guys probably remember that. Everybody comes out with palm branches and suddenly the crowds love him. Everyone loves Jesus. Everyone is so excited. And probably for the first time, the disciples are all fired up because they think there's hope. People are turning to Jesus. The whole nation's going to turn to Jesus. And you can almost probably sense the energy of these 12 apostles because they're going, it's happening. Remember, in their mind, in their paradigm, Jesus is not coming to establish a kingdom of the heart. Jesus is coming to establish a kingdom like King David. So they see all these people laying down their cloaks, laying down palm branches, and they're so amped up. And then Jesus looks at Peter and John and he says, Hey, guys, go find this man who has an upper room in his house and ask him if we can have Passover there. So James, or Peter, excuse me, and John go and they find this man just like Jesus directed, and they get an upper room and they begin to set up or cater. Can I use that word? They begin to cater the Passover. They had to set it up. That's what Jesus said to do. Passover is hugely significant. I just want to park here for just a minute. But it is so significant because Passover marks when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, and into freedom and on their way to the promised land. It's a beautiful symbol of what Christ Jesus was about to do on the cross. Our sovereign God orchestrated it just to be so. So what uh, Peter and John most likely had to do is they had to pick up four glasses of red wine at least to celebrate the Passover and those symbolize the four promises of God from Exodus. I will take you out. I will save you. I will redeem you. And I will make you a great nation. It's the same promises that got fulfilled as Jesus headed to that cross and hung there and then rose from the dead. Peter and John had to get a lamb. They had to slay the lamb and cook the lamb, symbolic of Christ Jesus who would hang on that cross for our sin. They had to get bitter herbs, which prophetically symbolize the bitterness of slavery in Egypt and then also symbolize the bitterness of life apart from the saving grace of Christ Jesus. This was the Passover feast, which really was a prophetic declaration of the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus so that he could live his life in us. The finished work of Christ is what they were celebrating, and these guys had no idea, no idea the significance of what was going on. See, it's a picture of God's sovereign timing. So Jesus is at this Last Supper. You guys have heard about it, you've probably seen the paintings. Everyone, we sort of know about it, but he's at this Last Supper. And I think most of the disciples are pretty lighthearted and charged up. I think they're excited. This is just Michael. This is me putting myself in that scenario and imagining what it would have been like because they've just come off this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. I imagine them laughing and talking. I imagine them cutting up because they have no idea what's coming. I imagine them telling jokes and Jesus sort of sober in his own heart. And then I begin to imagine, what would it be like if some of us were there? You know, I think the Bible is meant for us to actually like, dig into it and make it alive and immerse ourselves into it. So I started just sort of daydreaming. What would it be like if we were there? And I thought, you know what? If Wilbur Davis and Freddie Sutherland were there, they'd have been cutting up and elbowing each other. Come on, Freddie. If Jack Britton was there, he'd been telling a hunting story, holding his hands up about like that. If Tommy Cameron were there, I don't know if Tommy's here today. I think Tommy would have been rocking his harp. He'd have been playing worship music. He'd have been digging into it and all the younger disciples would have been like this and they'd have been swaying, lost in worship. They'd have been on the 24th stanza of the song. And the older disciples would have been like this. then all of a sudden Jesus switches the whole scenario and he makes it serious and the disciples might have begun to feel what's coming but he looks around and he says hey one of you guys is going to betray me and they're like dominoes they look around the room and they go Jesus is it me Jesus is it me and it literally goes all the way around the table And then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He breaks the bread and he said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And they still don't understand the depth and significance of what's happening. And then he takes the wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. See, the cross of Christ would change everything for all time. And yet the disciples probably have no idea the massive significance of what's coming. They have no idea that the world will forever change with the cross of Christ, that the history of all humanity is about to shift. And then you have John, the apostle, who leans over after dinner, and he lays his head on Jesus' chest, and they're hanging out. And then Jesus prays, and that's the prayer we're about to read. But after this prayer, he literally got up, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in a matter of hours after that, he's crucified. So this is Jesus' last prayer with his disciples. So I want you to get this, the significance of it. Let's read John 17 together. We're going to start in verse 20. I'm reading out of the NIV. Jesus knows what's coming, his disciples don't. My prayer is not for them alone, but my prayer is also for those who believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Of all the things Jesus could have prayed here, of all the things his last prayer could have been, he prayed for unity. He prayed for For oneness. Verse 23 I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In this crucial moment, with all of Jesus' divinity, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It comes down. To the most significant thing that Jesus could pray for us, which is oneness. It is unity. They will know that we are Christians by our love, by our oneness, by our unity. See, the magnitude of all creation, the solar system, the very earth that we live on comes down to this essential core of our faith. It's the relationship that exists between a heavenly father, his son Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the oneness that they experience, and then the oneness that they've called us to as a reflection of the unity within the Godhead. That means in your marriage. That means with your kids. That means with your grandkids. God has called us to oneness. See, John is establishing the deity of Christ Jesus. The partnership that exists, the unity and oneness between God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit begins to shine through to the oneness of us here on earth. I want you to think with me just for a minute as we close. And Dean, wherever you are, if you'll make your way back out here, oneness is mission critical. We have been given a mission. We have been given an assignment. We are not just drifting through life here. We have been called to reach Wilmington. We have been called to reach the world. We have been called to go. Our oneness is essential. Our unity is mission critical. Jesus did not pray for our rightness. He prayed for our oneness. Andy Stanley just said something at a conference that someone brought back to me, but he said, if your theology separates you from sinners like you, you may have some work to do on yourself. If your theology separates you from sinners like you, you may have some work to do on yourself. Can you imagine a world where people might be skeptical of what we as Christians believe but they're envious of how we as Christians treat one another. Can you imagine a world where people look at our marriages, at our relationships with our kids, at our church, and goes, why are you guys different? Why are you like this? That's the love of Jesus. That is the oneness of Christ. That's the unity of Christ. And that is what God has called us to. Revival will be sparked when believers not just in one church but across church lines begin to unify around who Christ is this morning I want to call us to a couple things and Dean maybe you guys can begin to play I want you to put your stuff down just for a minute I'm going to take an introspective few moments between you and the Holy Spirit I want you to begin to ask the question of yourself what is God calling you to in regard to unity within the body of Christ? Just close your eyes this morning. Is God calling you to reach out across a generational divide? Is God calling you to reach out across a political divide? Is God calling you to reach out across a racial divide like McKinley's doing? A racial divide or a relational I divide. God may even be calling you to reach out across a moral divide and love someone who is choosing to live differently than you. See, people were nothing like Jesus. yet they liked jesus and jesus liked them we have an opportunity to rally around our mission to be one in christ like jesus was one with god i'm telling you the world will take note as we as believers choose to engage in our oneness Holy Spirit, would you move across this house? Would you move across this church? And would you begin to bring oneness and unity into our house? Father, we pray for marriages in this house that they would begin to be healed, strengthened. Lord, we pray for relationships with grandkids, estranged family members, Holy Spirit, would you enliven some hearts across this room with a call to reach out where there's been brokenness relationally. Lord, as our country is even in divide right now, polarized, would you allow us to unify as the body of Christ, Lord Jesus, across every church that exists in Wilmington, would you allow us to rally and unify Holy Spirit, would you unify Myrtle Grove across the generations? As we're praying here this morning and as eyes are closed, is there anyone in here who has never asked Christ Jesus into their heart and come to faith in him? As eyes are closed, if there is, would you just slip up your hand and I'll lead us through a small prayer. Is there anyone who the Holy Spirit is touching in these moments to bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus? There will be. There's none today, but God has promised there will be. I want us to stand and, Dean, whatever song you're going to lead us through, I want you to look inward and ask the Holy Spirit What's he called you to reach across? How has he called you to live the oneness of Christ Jesus? This mission-critical calling, this unity that he has called us to live.